My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. The images and videos coming out of Ukraine since Russian forces invaded have been nothing short of stunning, terrifying, inspiring, and emotional. I mean, who will ever forget the clip of a Ukrainian fighter pilot nicknamed the Ghost of Kiev shooting down one Russian jet after another. Or the beauty of a Russian paratrooper floating gracefully down into an active war zone and filming a TikTok thousands of feet in the air. (laughs) Or the brave Ukrainian civilians changing the road signs around their cities to confuse the Russian invaders, but also so that every direction on them reads off. These are images that will live in our minds long after this invasion is over. And our minds is where they will have to live, because none of them are real. The Ghost of Kiev footage you may have seen is from a video game. The filming paratrooper video was taken years ago. The F-off road signs were, of course, photoshopped. And if you saw a young Ukrainian girl threatening a Russian soldier, that was actually a young Palestinian girl threatening an Israeli soldier a while back. Everything comes back again on the internet. There is no shortage of real, verifiable news that is terrifying and brutal and inspiring from this invasion. It can just be almost impossible to parse it from the stuff that is being shared for clicks or to prey on your emotions. And at a time when emotions everywhere are running high, it is even easier to fall for this stuff. So how can you tell? What should you do? Where can you find the real accounts and videos from the front lines? Today, we'll try to give you some places to start. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Craig Silverman is a reporter at ProPublica. He investigates platforms, disinformation, and digital manipulation. He is even the editor of the Verification Handbook series. Hey, Craig. Hey. Why don't you maybe start by telling me, because I know you've been doing some form of this for quite some time, uh, as Russia's invasion began— What did you expect, given your experience with misinformation and bots and everything, what did you expect to see on social media? Chaos, I guess, if there was one (laughs) word I would uh, pick. Uh, An event like uh, a war, just number one, you get a huge amount of information, especially today where you will have people on the ground in the country that in this case is being invaded, you know, sharing stuff from their houses so many people have smartphones. You will often see also military uh, on both sides 
filming their own things, sometimes uploading them to YouTube, sometimes sharing them, you know, in this case on Russian social media. And so I expected to see a huge amount of information and I expected to see a lot of confusion around what was real and what wasn't. I expected to see, uh, you know, video footage and photographs that people claim to be from a particular place. In fact, maybe being from, you know, two years ago or five years ago. And so I really expected a lot of confusion, a lot of false and misleading information, and then a lot of people sort of confidently declaring what was true, ending up being wrong as well. And uh, has your feed lived up to that expectation? Yeah, it has. And I think it's also one of the things that's really important to underline is that, you know, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, Russian state information behavior and Russian state media behavior and Ukrainian uh, state and Ukrainian uh, information outlets behavior. Uh, they're not the same, but there absolutely have been cases from each government and uh, from different types of media where things people have gotten things wrong. And sometimes, you know, that's by accident. And sometimes, you know, that is a very deliberate strategy. And so I think it really underlines for anyone who is out there consuming information particularly on social media where it's flowing so fast and, um, and from a variety of different sources to understand that anyone at any point could be wrong about something and you're going to need to help ox- uh, exercise some discretion. I'm glad you mentioned uh, both states playing this game. And I want to ask you something that kind of parallels the war on the ground a little bit. I think, I think most people would have expected Russia, given its reputation uh, on social media and and for disinformation in general, to kind of be dominating the misinformation war or dominating the the social media war, and that hasn't happened, has it? No, I th- I think there's been a lot of surprises about the lack of effectiveness from from Russia in terms of its military and also in terms of its kind of information warfare. And, you know, just to give a bit of context, I mean, you know, you mentioned sort of Russia's reputation for disinformation. I mean, this this isn't to excuse and say that those of us in the West and our governments have never lied about anything, obviously. You know, there there are uh, serious and valid complaints about um, any government mm-hmm. and no information ecosystem is perfect. In the right. case of Russia, if we talk about specifically its behavior in Ukraine, I mean, when it annexed Crimea and other territories back in 2014, it lied for a very long time about its troops even being in those areas. Whereas you could actually go on uh, VK and other Russian social media and some sometimes on Instagram and literally see Russian soldiers talking about where they are. Right. Um, and so that's an example of the kind of thing we have seen, you know, really, really brazen. And so there was an expectation that Russia would be ready to flood the zone uh, with its official state channels, probably with some, you know, sock puppets and other social media accounts pretending uh, to not necessarily be affiliated with the state uh, but out there pushing its line. And I think one of the things that was surprising is that the U.S. and some of its allies actually were proactively sharing some of the intelligence they seemed to be claiming that they had had gathered, saying that Russia had decided to invade. And I think it undercuts some of the planning from the Kremlin to really swiftly move into Ukraine to take control before anyone could say anything and to talk about it being them, you know, naturally returning Ukraine to Russia. And I think things just have not unfolded the way they wanted to, and they haven't been able to adapt. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the war on the ground, because obviously it's a rapidly changing situation, and and neither of us are experts. But the reason we asked you on today is to give us a sense of how the misinformation landscape uh, during this conflict 
is different, if at all, than a lot of the recent stuff we've experienced. You know, we've been covering this uh, since COVID started and there were miracle cures. Uh, Anti-vaccination was a huge source of misinformation. Uh, We can talk about Syria and Afghanistan. Is is there anything that you're seeing uh, from Ukraine that is different from those examples? Yes, I I think that a couple of things stand out. So one is, again, there seems to have been a U.S. government decision to not keep certain intelligence close to its vest, but to actually publicize what it believed to be Russia's intentions. And it it was interesting because as the U.S. government was talking about Russia planning to invade imminently, you know, well before it did, you had Ukrainian leadership saying everyone needs to calm down. But I think, you know, in the end, the fact that Putin did invade, it caught some of his own biggest supporters off guard. And they were in some ways never believing he was going to invade. They believed that he was going to, you know, completely take over the disputed regions and claim those and make them, you know, independent, but under Russia's wing. But the fact that he did a full invasion, I think, really destabilized some of his own supporters. So that's one piece of it. And then the second that has been, I think, surprising and dictated some of the information warfare is that there has been an astounding amount of uh, unity against Russia and behind Ukraine Mm -hmm. among, you know, among Europe, uh, among uh, countries around the world. And Russia ended up having very few allies in terms of governments and places. Uh, And so the amount of support for Ukraine and the amount of governments speaking up, all of that, I think, created a, a really big online movement in its wake where that started to dominate. And it was very hard, I think, for Russian efforts to cut through. I know we can't go through all of this stuff because there's mountains of it, but maybe could you tell me and give me a couple of examples of some of the memorable images and videos we've supposedly seen uh, from Ukraine that have been debunked already? One really viral uh, image and claim that, that I think needs to be talked about, because I think a lot of people actually, this is going to surprise them, is relatively early in the invasion, there were reports, and it actually came directly from the Ukrainian government at one point, saying that uh, a group of 13 border guards or soldiers on a place called Snake Island, you know, had basically told a Russian warship that warned it that they were about to attack to, you know, F off, I guess we could say, and then that all of them had been killed. And uh, the Ukrainian government announced that, that all of those people would be given sort of the highest honor that they have as heroes of Ukraine. And it, and it was really powerful because there was actually... Um, you know, an audio recording of the exchange between the warship and, and the people on Snake Island. Mm-hmm. And so that was the narrative for several days. And and within, a, I think, about 24 to 48 hours or so, you started to see a little bit of something coming up in opposition to that, which was a Russian military official saying, no, 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 they have simply been, you know, taken prisoner, they are alive. We did not kill them. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people in the West are skeptical of any kind of official claims from Russia at this point. Right. Uh, but the fact is, at that point, it was disputed. And then the Ukrainian government started to acknowledge that, OK, we don't actually know for sure if they were dead. It's possible. Maybe they're still alive and that would be good. And now it has actually apparently been confirmed that they they were taken prisoner and they are alive. And I think that was a really great example because it was a galvanizing thing that was absolutely used for propaganda purposes to kind of, you know, the moral force of it and to boost morale of Ukrainians. And it's still an incredible story in terms of them defying. They were greatly outnumbered, uh, but they didn't die. And this is something that, again, I think is going to surprise a lot of people. Apparently, they have been uh, taken prisoner. They are still alive. That's good news. But it definitely was something that took off and was, I think, widely, you know, talked about and viewed in a certain way. 
Why do we fall for stuff like that when we should be well aware that this is an information war almost as much as a real one, especially given Russia's involvement? I have seen, you know, very credible people who I trust who have been on this program before sharing some of this stuff. Absolutely. Look, the fact is people are taking sides. And when you take sides and when you become a supporter of one point of view and one side, you make yourself susceptible to the propaganda of a given side. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, forget the actors, forget it's Russia, forget it's Ukraine, all of that. That is a fundamental truth. And this is what we all have to understand is, is how we feel about this conflict and our views and uh, the things that we have come to believe about what's going on. That shapes how we process all of the information that we see and hear. None of us are purely rational. Inf- information consumption is about emotion. It's about belonging. It's about things that are much more powerful simply than facts, okay? And so we all have to be aware of that. And, you know, that story appealed to people around the world who were supportive of Ukraine, who believed that Russia would not take prisoners and would kill them. And it was one that was galvanizing for so many people. And so we have to understand that this is the nature of war. Different events are going to be used by different governments and different sides to bolster their image. And sometimes there are genuinely unintentional mistakes where, you know, they think someone is alive, they think someone is dead, and they get it wrong. Uh, And this is going to happen over and over and over again, which is why everyone needs to kind of find a way to pause and to test your own views and biases against the information that you are consuming. I want to get your process for doing that. First, I'm just going to ask you quickly, are you familiar with the uh, Ghost of Kiev footage? Yes, I think this is this is another example of a kind of classic wartime uplifting narrative. Uh, so the ghost of Kiev is allegedly a pilot who has had an insane kill streak in shooting down Russian aircraft, uh, and there was footage claiming to show them. And so you know the footage does not show a Ukrainian fighter pilot. And beyond that, there is zero evidence that there is one pilot who fits any description related to the ghost of Kiev. It simply does not seem to exist at all. And I can tell you, it really evoked for me memories of the conflict in Syria from back in 2014, when there was the rumor of a a female Kurdish fighter who was dubbed the Angel of Kobane. And she was supposedly had killed, you know, dozens of ISIS fighters on her own. And there was a photo of a woman with a rifle in fatigues. And they said, this is her name. This is Rihanna. She has, you know, killed all of these ISIS fighters. She is the angel of Kobani. And it spread on Twitter. It got written up by tons of media. And there is zero evidence that there was ever anyone of that name. That's not the woman in the photo's <laughs> name. And there's no evidence that, that, you know, anyone of that description had killed that many ISIS fighters. And it just repeats itself again and again in every conflict because people want stories like that of the underdog rising above and taking out the enemy in massive numbers. So when you see something uh, like that footage, what goes through your mind initially? And then second, what's the first thing you do to try to verify it? The thing that I have tried to train myself to do and that I would encourage people to think about is, is to immediately take a pause. So you read something and you register, oh, this is new information. Maybe it's got a significant claim, you know, about territory being taken or lost or about the loss of life or what have you. In that moment, rather than deciding to accept it, that's when you have to sort of step back from your emotional information processing and think about, okay, so wait a second, you know, where is this coming from? And so I have tried to train myself 
to have that sense of pause and detachment. But I call it train, and I and I don't say that I have trained myself because we all you can fall victim to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is one of the things that in my day job as a journalist, I have to try and be aware of my biases and account for them and factor that into my work. And that used to be a thing that journalists really had to focus on more than the average person. But I really think in an age of social media, of information abundance, and where so much information is unverified or false, we all need to take on that kind of role of distinguishing what we are seeing and pausing and thinking about where it is coming from. Can we find other examples of it that support or refute it? And also being willing to say, okay, I'm gonna wait and see how this evolves. Because especially in the time of conflict, if you aren't willing to pause and to say, let's wait and see how this evolves, you are going to be whiplashed from one false or unverified claim to the next. And you will not be able to feel like you have found a center where you are navigating this in a manageable and sustainable way. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. On the one hand, you have, you know, the ghost of Kiev. And, I mean, I've seen a picture of a soldier holding a cat and was told that uh, these cats are used to actually follow the dots that snipers use back to the sniper's nest so that they can be sniped. These are trained cats. Obviously, that's not true. There's lots of examples of that stuff that that should tweak anybody's uh, sensors immediately. Mm. But I've also seen a ton of other stuff that seems almost impossible to verify, like black and white images of tanks by the side of the road or, uh, you know, drone footage that seems to show an explosion. Right. And, you know, right now, it's a foreign language. There are foreign letters on the screen. I don't understand anything. It's being shared by people who obviously have much more experience in this area than I do. How do you navigate that? during a time like this? And I know you can't verify everything, but but how do you approach that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think you identified a couple of important things there, which, which is uh, to sort of assess where you feel a level of confidence and where you don't, right? And we don't want to get to the point of overconfidence, but you point out that, you know, I don't speak Russian and I don't speak Ukrainian, neither do you, it sounds like. Uh, I'm not an expert in munitions, uh, I'm not an expert in, you know, war planning and war fighting. And so the average person listening to this, if you're checking a lot of those boxes among others, I think, one, we have to be kind of have a sense of humility. And we also have to be realistic about what we ourselves can do. And so I think a very easy thing that you can do is, one, always pause, right, and think about where is this coming from. And then, two, if somebody is claiming something specific about, you know, a battle in a particular town, why don't you try, you know, moving off of, say, social media? And why don't you try searching on Google and seeing if you can find other sources? And then it's about evaluating those sources, right? And so when it comes to verifying footage from a war zone, for example, 
there are people who are very good at this. There are people who spend time working on it and who will also show their work, right? They won't just make a claim that you have to accept or reject. They will show, here is how, you know, we decided that this was actually shot here. And here is, you know, additional footage that we managed to find. And so I would really put my weight in, you know, finding additional sources and then looking and seeing, are they showing you evidence to support their conclusion or are they simply just passing along what the other people had? And if people do that, if people pause, if people think about, you know, searching and finding some additional other sources and then reading those sources with an eye very much towards, are they introducing new information and evidence that helps make this case? Then you can start to feel like you're navigating. You don't need to be a linguist. You don't need to be a technical expert or a verification expert. You need to be somebody willing to pause, to do a little more searching, and to read closely. And if you do those things, I think you'll end up finding that you're able to distinguish good from bad information. And the last thing is that there are things that will remain unverified for long periods of time and that we may never actually have a full and clear answer to. And especially when it comes to consuming information during a war, you have to start getting comfortable with that. You have to be willing to live in the gray and understand that some things are just not fully confirmed or refuted yet. And you should place that, you know, in a certain part of your brain where you're sort of waiting to see how it evolves and if it evolves, but you haven't decided sort of yes or no on it yet. I think that's incredibly good advice and applicable to sort of any kind of breaking news situation on social media. But I also want to ask you, in particular, for something like this, and you've already mentioned, you know, there's a narrative at play here. We're choosing sides. There are heroes and there are villains. There are some really powerful emotions attached to some of the stuff uh, that we're seeing on social media right now. Can we put our ideology aside and and try to parse uh, truth from lies in the middle of this? I don't know how possible it is when I see, you know, how inspiring this stuff is to some people. Yes. And I think the scenario there is you can't completely step out of your humanity. You can't completely step out of who you are, the way you see the world, and your experience and everything else that has brought you to that point. So I think it's it's not about necessarily removing all that and more about just having a level of self-awareness so that you don't let it take take yourself over completely. You know, you can certainly want certain things to be true, as I think a lot of people wanted the Snake Island narrative to be true in the sense that it showed what they thought of Russian forces and also the heroic effort of Ukrainian forces. But it's also a weird scenario in that it's a good thing that they haven't been killed, right? right. And even though it's not the narrative that it was, it's still that that strange and complex set of feelings. And that's the kind of thing that I think you should we should all kind of sit with and, and realize these kind of perverse scenarios that we start to cheer for or cheer against. And just be aware of it. I honestly think that pausing and having a sense of self-awareness are really, really powerful things. Don't think you can deny what you think and what you feel, just try to control for it a little bit so that you can actually get a sense of reality. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that's that's really the most powerful thing. It, it may be bad news and it make you feel demoralized. It may be going against what you hope happens, but at least you know, at least you're not not in that fog of war. And that's a really powerful and important thing. I only have a couple more questions left for you, but one I definitely want to ask is, can you give us some practical places to start, especially during this conflict? You know, you mentioned uh, you don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. You're right. I don't either. There are journalists that do. There are people out here sort of filtering facts from lies. 
Who are you following and what are you looking at um, as you try to navigate this? When I'm trying to get a sense of what's actually going on with the battle itself and, you know, where are troops and, you know, what is going on with that and what bombs are being dropped, there is an organization called Bellingcat, which specialized and, in fact, since 2014 has been doing a lot of verification work in Ukraine. They did work uh, verifying munitions and battles in Syria. And as I said before, you know, whatever you may think of their ideology and the people working there, they will show you their work. And you can make up your mind whether you're convinced by it or not. So I look to Bellingcat when I'm trying to figure out, you know, where troops are and that kind of thing. I think the New York Times also has an excellent visual investigations team who also specialize in that kind of work of gathering and verifying video. And they will, again, show you how they got there. Maybe you're not a huge fan of the Times, but you can make up your own mind based on the evidence that's there. So those are two places for that kind of on-the-ground stuff that I'm looking for. I used to work for BuzzFeed News, and they have a reporter named Christopher Miller who was in Ukraine for a very long time and has been back there and is on the ground. Uh, so I have a bias towards finding people who are doing, one, reporting, mm-hmm. not just expressing opinions. Opinions and analysis, very helpful, but that's not what I focus on. I want people who are doing reporting, who are on the ground. And I'll tell you, a test for me a lot of the times is, is are they reporting information that might be inconvenienced? to whatever side you may consider their outlet to be on? Right. Um, are they willing to go against what your preconceived notions are? Uh, and I think that's that's really important. Who is there and, and sharing factual information and backing it up with images and video? And who is also willing to give information from a wide, wide variety of places? You know, one of the things that I have become skeptical of is, you know, there are a lot of uh, great reporters in Ukraine, but there's a lot of them who are just reporting the information coming from Ukraine's uh, Ministry of Defense and not necessarily always kind of giving caveats that, hey, this is, you know, from a government. This is what they're claiming in terms of how many, you know, Russian uh, vehicles they took out today. Mm -hmm. And I think people uh, can support Ukraine, but they can also remember that governments get stuff wrong. Whether they intend to or not, they get stuff wrong. And as much as possible, we need to combine what comes from official government sources with what is available on the ground. And if you start putting those things together, you can start to feel like you're getting some semblance of reality. I want to ask you a tangentially related question, uh, but its purpose might become clear. I don't know if you can answer this or not, but I thought, well, I had you here, I would definitely ask because uh, over the past couple of years, I've been in contact with lots of epidemiologists and public health folks as I do this podcast. And They have told me and posted publicly over the last few days that since this invasion began, they've seen the number of anti-vax trolls and COVID trolls almost vanishing from the replies to their statements. Is this wishful thinking? Is this possible um, that it was mostly Russia and now they're distracted? Uh, I I think that, one, we could accept that maybe they're seeing less pushback, less trolling on their stuff. But I think to connect that directly to Russia is a step that I wouldn't be ready to take yet. And the reason for that is if we do the basic test of, are there other possible explanations? I think there's another possible explanation, which is that, you know, simply where is attention right now? Right. And people who might be uh, normally fired up about vaccines and mandates, maybe putting their attention on the war. Uh, And maybe they're doing trolling for one side or another, or maybe they're just sitting there wrapped and they have set aside their their anti-vax beefs for the moment. So that is a plausible uh, explanation. 
And it's also possible that, that yes, uh, perhaps, you know, some of that trolling has come from people based in Russia, because uh, Russia is, of course, a well-documented place that, that has kind of offensive information operations where they are trying to sow division in democratic countries that they see as enemies of Russia. And pushing anti-vaccine narratives has been part of that, among others. And so I, I think that you know, we shouldn't discount the fact that this conflict, this war, has taken up so much attention and so much of the information space that we could expect the focus on other things to recede. I mean, today, you know, one of the most important climate change reports has just been released. And how much attention is that going to get? You know, uh, Joe Biden has nominated the first black woman to be uh, a justice of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. How much attention has that got? And, you know, the answer is far less than they normally would have received. There's an inquiry into the biggest mass killing in Canadian history right now. That's right. That's right. It is being live tweeted. Absolutely gruesome, horrific details of the mass shooting in Nova Scotia. And there are a lot of people who are, you know, really still training their eyes on Ukraine. And and it's it's not something that I, I shame them for. It's completely understanding. But it is taking up so much of the oxygen and, and the other thing, which very much relates to what we've been talking about, is that because that is where the action is, so to speak, not only in terms of, you know, the war in horrible ways, but also where the attention and the engagement is, we right. are seeing all different kinds of actors wanting to seize on that. And like one example would be on TikTok, there have been a bunch of accounts getting millions and millions of views for airing old footage that they are claiming to be live streams of action in Ukraine, and in some cases, earning money from people donating to those live streams. And so we have all kinds of people trying to exploit this information environment. And that leaves you and me and everybody else trying to navigate it, trying to not be taken in. And that is part of our duty as you know information consumers now. Craig, thank you so much for this. As always, um, before you go, maybe just uh, let us know where people can get the Verification Handbook. The Verification Handbook, the most recent edition of which is focused on identifying disinformation and media manipulation, is available at datajournalism.com. Thanks again, Craig. Thank you. Craig Silverman of ProPublica. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, and write to us anytime. Send us real videos only, please at The Big Story Podcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. If you are looking for the verification handbook, we will link to it in the show notes for this episode, and we'll link to it on social media. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.